0: Welcome to Carl Chin's Birmingham, brought to you by History West Midlands On Air. Well-known broadcaster and author, Professor Carl Chin, honours the working people, some famous but mostly forgotten, who shaped the history of Birmingham. He tells their stories as only he can, applauding their courage in adversity while recognising that there were sinners as well as saints. This month, I'd like you to join with me on a tour exploring the bonds between Birmingham and the West Indies. I can still hear the captivating melody and feel the compelling rhythms of Blueberry Hill by Fats Domino drifting up from the garage where Mom and Dad were holding a party with family and friends. Sitting at the top of the stairs, me, our kid and a bevy of cousins listened to the chatter and the laughter but young as I was at six or seven years old in the early 1960s, it was the music that drew me in and held me fast. And it wasn't only the bluesy rock and roll of Fats Domino, it was the consummate jazz of Duke Ellington and Count Basie and the mellow, silky tones of Ella Fitzgerald and Nat King Cole. Mum and Dad, like their friends and relatives, had been grabbed by jazz from the late 1940s through listening to the American Forces Network, AFN, on the wireless and by seeing some of the great American musicians and singers at the Hippodrome or else at the Town Hall. But then there was also a newer, more distinctive sound that was played at those parties at our mums. It was that of blue beat records. Influenced by American blues though they were, these blue beat songs were yet a Jamaican phenomenon. Powered by a tremendous beat, their rhythm and blues sound was also affected by the Jamaican folk music of Mento. The precursor of ska and thus reggae, it was those blue beat records that a few years later would lead me as a young teenager to Prince Buster and Al Capone, Eric Donaldson and Cherry o Baby, and other ska and reggae artists and their hits. And for that, I thank my late uncle, Johnny Brown it was he who brought to Mum and Dad's parties the Blue Beat records that he bought in Kingston, the capital of Jamaica, when he was home visiting his mother. Uncle Johnny had come to Birmingham in about 1949, and soon after met Dad's oldest sister, Violet. They married, and with the help from my granddad Chin, who was an illegal book in Sparkbrook, they opened up a lodging house at number 71 Trafalgar Road, Moseley. That was by 1952. And I'm standing outside that house now. It's a big, late Victorian structure but during the Second World War, the local middle-class people moved away because of the bombing in nearby Sparkbrook and Borsal And after the Second World War, many of the houses around here were turned into lodging houses. Anyway, the lodging house that my auntie Vi and Uncle Johnny had provided much better facilities than the usual overcrowded and insanitary places where West Indian men had to stay because of racism. And it also became something of a community centre. There were some dance halls that welcomed West Indians in them days, including the nearby Mosey and Borsalheath Institutes and St Paul's Dance in Borsalheath, but others were not as friendly. In these circumstances, Aunt Vi's lodging house became a focal point, not only for the men lodging there, but also for other West Indians who lived nearby in Borsalheath and Sparkbrook, and they came here for shabeans. My auntie Vi made goat curry and Jamaican dumplings for the guests at these parties. There was drink to buy. And the parties were filled with music and laughter. And amongst those who were the regulars there were the late and famed jazz musician Andy Hamilton and his talented trumpeter Scotty. I've come down to Fargo Road just a short way to the Mosey Road, right by the traffic lights at the junction with Cromer Road and Brighton Road. And I'm standing in front of the Mosey and Borsalith Institute itself. It's an impressive building. And looking at it, it brings to mind a story our mum told me. When she was about 17 in 1953, she and some of her friends had come over here from Aston to a dance. A number of West Indian men were also there, and some of them asked the girls to have a dance with them. They all said no, apart from our mum, who said yes. Her friends then left without her because she had danced with a black chap. But mum said that she'd been brought up to show respect to everyone and not to judge anybody by the colour of their skin. Mum also said that the man was a fabulous bopper and in an era when dancing was so important to working-class youngsters, to dance well was an impressive skill. She also said that Uncle Johnny was a very good dancer, as well as a hard worker and kind man. As a social historian who tells everyone to get their stories down, I really regret that I never had the opportunity to record Uncle Johnny and to capture his memories of coming to Birmingham as one of the very first West Indians here. Indeed, too few of those early settlers from Jamaica, Barbados, St Kitts, Trinidad, St Lucia, St Nevis and elsewhere have passed on their stories. Uncle Johnny had come to Birmingham a year after the symbolic docking in London in 1948 of the Empire Windrush, which had carried just under 500 young West Indian men and women who had come here to help rebuild Britain after the war. They and those that followed would indeed play a vital role in pulling back our country. Crucially, these immigrants did not see themselves as such. In their minds, they were coming home. They were coming home to the mother country, about which they had been taught so much by their parents and teachers, and to which they felt bonded by language, history, culture and affinity. They were mostly young and immaculately dressed. The men in their best suits and hats, the women in their poshest dresses, white gloves and also hats. Amongst that band of pioneers were men who had been in the Royal Air Force, along with other west indians they had made a major contribution to the british war efforts during the second world war the caribbean colonies as they then were had raised impressive sums of money almost one million pounds to the united kingdom for general war purposes three million pounds in interest-free loans and half a million pounds each to various war charities as well as the purchase of aircraft On top of this, the West Indies had supplied valuable resources such as bauxite for aluminium, petroleum, sugar, timber, rice and rubber. The RAF in particular was popular with West Indian men as it had introduced the overseas recruiting scheme in 1940. This brought in several hundred aircrew, including pilots. Then, between 1943 and 1945, the RAF recruited 5,500 West Indians specifically for ground crew duties in the UK. An Air Ministry confidential order from June 1944 intimated that these patriotic men faced some racial discrimination. It stated that all ranks had to clearly understand... ..that there is no colour bar in the Royal Air Force. The volunteers from the West Indies... ..feel a close
1: tie with the mother country, and the mainspring of their desire to serve is a strong sense of loyalty.
0: Any instance of discrimination by white servicemen or others...
1: ..should be immediately and severely checked.
0: The docking of the Empire Windrush was indeed a momentous and symbolic event, but it should not be regarded as the starting point of Birmingham's close relationship with the West Indies. Sadly, that began with a shameful trade in the 18th and early 19th centuries, when Birmingham's gun makers made huge profits by selling weapons to slave traders who exchanged them for African men, women and children who'd been captured and sold into slavery to work on the sugarcane plantations in the West Indies. And it should not be forgotten either that many of the steam engines of Bolton and Watt were vital for milling sugar on those sugar cane plantations. The very places where so many slaves suffered were abused and died. Looking up now at the gilded bronze statue of Bolton, Watt and Murdoch, here at the top of Broad Street and opposite the Library of Birmingham, I wonder how Bolton could reconcile his profits from such a business with his avowed stance against slavery. But there was one Birmingham man who made his mark locally, nationally and internationally and who never compromised his principles for profit. His name was Joseph Sturge. Born in 1793 and the son of a Gloucestershire farmer, Sturge did become a wealthy businessman. In 1822 he and his brother Charles established themselves in Birmingham as corn merchants This became their distribution centre, whilst Gloucester was the focus of their warehouses and imports. Transportation between the two places was vital, and unsurprisingly, the brothers were drawn to the canal hub of Birmingham, the Broad Street area. And from at least 1833, their premises were on the corner of Broad Street with Gas Street. That's where I am now. More recently, this site was a pub called the Merchant Stores, and it's another bar today but the merchant store's name was a fitting one, for it was here that the merchant Sturge stored his corn. From here on the corner of Gas Street and Broad Street, the business of the Sturges became one of the first houses of England, even though Joseph abandoned any trade in grain that was directly involved in making alcoholic drinks. He was a fervent advocate of temperance, and his principles informed his actions in all that he did. And with his brother mostly running their company, Joseph did much. Indeed, he lived his life campaigning for peace, justice and equality for all. A devout Quaker, he abided by the belief that every hour of each day, a Christian had to do the will of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So, when revolutions convulsed Europe in 1848, Sturge went to their focal point in Paris and attended a peace congress. Six years later, when war was about to break out between the United Kingdom and Russia in the Crimea, he made his way to St Petersburg to plead for peace with the Tsar. Such actions would have been enough for many, but they weren't enough for Sturge. Wherever there was need, so was he to be found. When famine ravaged Ireland and Finland, he endeavoured mightily to bring aid to the starving. When destitute youths in Birmingham had no hope, he founded a home for them. And when working-class teenagers and young men needed an adult school, he encouraged Quaker friends to start one. Everywhere there was injustice, so did Sturge strive to overcome it. He founded the complete suffrage union because he believed passionately that working-class people should have the vote and not be excluded from the political nation through class prejudice. Above all, Sturge abhorred bigotry, and perhaps nothing more aroused both his disgust and his efforts to right wrong than the evil of slavery. Sturge lived in Edgbaston, and here at the bustling and busy Five Ways, on the borders of Birmingham and Edgbaston, there is a statue to him that goes mostly unnoticed. It was placed here so as to be close both to his Edgbaston home and his Broad Street business. And its unveiling on the 4th of June 1862 was attended by over 12,000 people. Placed on a pedestal, Sturge's hand rests on a Bible. At his feet sit two female figures. One represents peace and is holding an olive branch and a dove, and beside her is a lamb. The other figure represents charity and is comforting a slave child. The statue is inscribed with the words... He
1: laboured to bring freedom to the Negro slave, the vote to British workmen, and the promise
0: of peace to a war-torn world. It is a pity that Sturge's words and deeds are so little honoured today in the city where he settled and which was the base for his inspired and powerful campaigning against the iniquity of slavery. In 1826, he became secretary of the Birmingham Anti-Slavery Society, As such, he visited other branches, like that in Liverpool in July 1830, and at which he made it clear that he and his fellows in Birmingham were in favour of the immediate emancipation of slaves. This was a radical stance, but as a meeting of the Birmingham Society declared in July 1832, it was predicated upon the conviction that... The
1: system of colonial slavery is altogether inconsistent with Christianity that it cannot exist but in defiance of all justice, humanity and religion, that its continuation is a great national crime. Accordingly, it was... The duty of all Christians to use their utmost efforts to effect its immediate extinction as the only means of freeing themselves from a participation of the guilt which it involves and of removing so foul a stain on the character of a Christian nation.
0: The next year, in 1833, An Act of Parliament abolished slavery in most of the British Empire. It authorised the payment of £20 million compensation, not to the slaves, but to the slave owners. Sturge railed against this obscenity, considering that the slaves had inalienable rights of which no
1: law could justifiably deprive them, and that uncompensated labour was an
0: injustice which no law could make right. He was as repulsed by the provision that ensured that former slaves would be indentured in apprentices to their former owners. Those who had been field slaves would be bonded for six years to work 45 hours a week and receive, in return, only food and clothing. Whilst those who had not been field slaves would work unlimited hours for four years. This was far from the immediate emancipation that Sturge had called for, and so, in November 1836, he set off for the West Indies to see for himself the conditions still endured by the former slaves. He was pleased with the situation in Antigua, where the legislature had rejected indentured apprenticeship and passed a measure of complete freedom. Thence, Sturge went to Montserrat, where he would later buy a sugar plantation to show that sugar could still be produced profitably by the fair treatment of workers. Sturge continued on to Martinique, St Lucia and Barbados. Here, in one month, in one district alone, plantation owners had complained against 226 labourers for trivial offences, such as supposedly washing linen badly or impertinence. They were punished with 697 days of confinement and hard
1: labour, 517 Saturdays forfeited to the estate, 127 days of solitary confinement, and 180 days on the
0: treadmill. The so-called offenders then had to pay for this out of his or her own time. Jamaica was Sturge's final port of call. After he returned to England in the summer of 1837, he told a meeting of over 500 people at Birmingham Town Hall that whilst on the island he had visited 30 to 40 sugar, cattle and coffee estates. He had also gone to 20 jails and various schools and places of worship. As well as that, Sturge had spoken with stipendiary magistrates appointed to supervise the new law and to a large number of other white people who were connected and unconnected to the plantation interest. Their testimony had been supplemented by valuable documentary evidence. However, the information that Sturge most valued was the personal communication with 70 to 80 black people from the same number of estates across the island. Sturge found that indentured labourers were deprived of their usual allowance of salt, fish and clothes, and of their own time. One woman with eight children was sent to the treadmill because she was in weak health and could not work with the gang that did the hardest work. She had the best house on the estate and afterwards it was torn down by the overseer. The treadmill was a vile and fearsome thing. Sturge described the one he saw as a cylinder ten feet across and with broad steps upon which the prisoners were stood. Their hands were strapped to a rail above. The driver of the wheel had a cat o' nine tails with which he whipped the men on their backs and the women on their feet as the treadmill went round. It's steps and drum were stained with old and recent blood. This latter had been shed so profusely by an old lady that... Even the sand on the floor beneath was thickly sprinkled with it. The jailer told Sturge that this unfortunate woman had been punished that morning. Unable to keep the step as the mill went round, she... ...hung
1: for the entire 15 minutes suspended by her wrists, with the revolving steps
0: beating against and bruising her body the whole time. The next day, After this awful punishment, Sturge saw this old woman in a penal gang working on a road. She was compelled to carry a basket of stones on her head and
1: chained like the rest in pairs, two and two, with iron collars. She was so
0: dreadfully mangled that they had not attempted to put her on the mill again. Sturge acted decisively against the horrors he had witnessed and led a campaign for full emancipation. It succeeded on the 1st of August, 1838. He also supported Baptists in Jamaica in buying land for free villages where former slaves could live fully free of the control of plantation owners. One such was in the dry harbour mountains of St Anne, eight miles from Brownstown, which was named Sturgetown in honour of Joseph Sturge. Another was New Birmingham, now called the Alps, founded in 1838 on a former coffee estate that had been named the Alps. The first of these villages was in Sligoville, in St Catherine, After Sturge died in 1859, the church and congregations there, and also in nearby Spanish town, sent an address to his family, expressing their deep sorrow at the loss of their devoted friend and benefactor. Some of them recalled Sturge's noble and generous conduct when he had visited the island, and all praised his long, arduous and unwavering advocacy of their rights as men and British subjects above all. Sturge had achieved the boon of complete emancipation, something that was beyond all price. On Friday, the 27th of May 1859, 60 morning carriages followed Sturge's hearse from his home of Southfield, the site of which is where I am now, in Wheelies Road, Edgbaston. His time here is marked by a Birmingham Civic Society blue plaque. Thence, the cortege made its way to the Friends, the Quakers' burial ground in Ball Street. Before it walked more than 3,000 people, standing three abreast. The Reverend John Angel James, the formidable minister of the Cars Lane Congregational Church, declared with conviction that the lengthened cortege, the closed
1: shops, the crowded streets, the long procession of respectable men, the mixture of ministers and members of all religious denominations The seriousness and sorrow that sat on every countenance, which in mournful silence seemed to say, we have lost a benefactor.
0: Few had reached out the hand of brotherhood to the outcast of society, as did Joseph Sturge. Upon being told of his death, an old man who was imprisoned at Birmingham jail pronounced, Then Birmingham has lost its best friend.
1: Only think what he has done for the working man, or tried to do. He may have had
0: his faults, but I never heard of one. They were sentiments shared by many former slaves in the West Indies. And now, would it not be fitting in his memory, in memory of all those who suffered under the vile slave trade in the West Indies, and in recognition of the vital contribution made to our city by men and women from the West Indies, the Birmingham Council finally arranged for an official relationship with Sturgetown in Jamaica.
1: Carl Chin's Birmingham is a History West Midlands production, For more information, visit the website at www.historywm.com.